Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on when and where you are listening. What you are listening to is the Tech.eu podcast. This is episode number 179. I am your host, Robin Wouters. I am also the co-founder of Tech.eu and filling in for the time being for André Degeler from our team who will be back on podcasting duty in August. Meanwhile, I sincerely hope that you are staying safe and sane in these crazy times. What an absolutely bonkers year this has already been, and it's looking quite grim for the rest of it and beyond. So take care of yourselves and those around you. Anyway, uh, today we are going to talk about arguably one of the sexiest topics ever addressed on this podcast, which is the post-coronavirus recovery deal and overall budget agreement that European Union leaders have reached in a very recent marathon summit. But I swear this is actually relevant to the European tech, science and innovation community and they should be aware and pretty sad if not very angry about some of the decisions that were made. But first we'll hear from our Berlin-based news editor Annie Musgrove who will be delighting you with a rundown of some of the biggest news in the EU tech industry in the past week followed by an interview I recently had with Philippe Botteri. He is a partner at one of the largest and most active venture capital firms in Europe, Axel. One of the oldest businesses on the internet has a new owner after one of the largest auctions of the year. Norway's Adaventa is buying eBay's ads business for $9.2 billion to create the world's largest online classifieds company. Adaventa beat out Naspers Process, the largest consumer internet company in Europe, and a large private equity consortium, according to media reports. The bid from Oslo-based Adaventa, which operates a number of online marketplaces across Europe and Latin America, got a surprise boost because eBay wanted to keep a significant stake in the business, even if it's deciding to shift focus back to its main online marketplace, according to those same reports. The deal, Norway's biggest in more than a decade, will significantly boost the size of Adaventa, which was spun off from Scandinavian media conglomerate Shibstead last year. Shipstead's ownership in the new company will decrease to about 33% from 59%, while eBay gets a 44% ownership stake, a third of the voting power, and two seats on the board. Three interesting stories from the world of electric vehicles surfaced last week. One is that Paris has authorized three operators to deploy electric scooter fleets. As the UK still has to wait for e-scooters to start filling its city streets, Dot, Tier, and Lime have been awarded a two-year tender to operate 5,000 scooters each in the city of Paris. That means other well-known companies in the space did not get the big contract, including the American company Bird and other companies with one-syllable names such as Bolt, Spin, Boy, and Wind. In other smart mobility news, the founders of Berlin music streaming app SoundCloud are at it again. As the sales of e-bikes have started soaring across Europe, they're launching an e-bike subscription startup called Dance, betting that their experience in building a community of enthusiasts will ensure the venture is more sustainable than bike sharing. The idea for the venture predates the coronavirus, but the service is currently still invite-only in Berlin, with subscriptions priced at 59 euros a month. That compares to an average e-bike purchase price of around 2,300 euros. Dan's plans to go international once it has refined its bike design, smartphone app, and operating model. Meanwhile, Brussels-based e-bike company Cowboy has secured 23 million euros in Series B funding to pursue its mission of replacing city cars with sustainable transportation. Leading the round is Exor Seeds, the early-stage investment arm of Exor, which is the controlling shareholder of Ferrari. 
funds like Isomer Capital, Future Positive Capital, and Index Ventures also participated in the round. Currently, the business operates in Austria, Belgium, France, Germany, Italy, Luxembourg, the Netherlands, Spain, and the UK. With the new investment, Cowboy plans to hire over 30 people in the next six months, scale operations, and expand its footprint across Europe. We also ran a syndicated article last week from our friends over at Crunchbase News. In their European Venture Report for Q2 2020, the company said European Venture funding for the first half of this year is down 20% from 2019, when it was at an all-time high. The first half of 2020 still beat out 2018 by more than a billion dollars. The decrease comes after a continued annual upward trend since 2016, and of course, during an unprecedented shakeup due to the global coronavirus outbreak. According to Crunchbase's research team, the second quarter of 2020 tracks at $8.1 billion, compared with $11.2 billion for the second quarter of 2019. Year-over-year quarterly funding is down 28%, Quarter over quarter, it's down 8%. On another note, investments into the UK market are more than double the next leading market, which is Germany. France rounds out the top three, followed by Sweden and Switzerland. Thank you for that, Annie. And now I would like to talk about something that should be of major concern to anyone who cares about Europe's ability to compete globally when it comes to technology, innovation, science, and research. You see, last week on the fifth day of a marathon summit, EU leaders reached what they called a historic agreement on the new multi-annual financial framework and recovery and resilience fund, which amounted to a total of about 1.8 trillion euros. However, in order to achieve these new agreements, substantial cuts have been made to the bloc's various funding programs, including those in the digital fields. Uh, Members of the European Parliament were understandably quick to lament the cuts to various EU digital programs. For instance, there was MEP uh, Alexandra Gies from the Greens EFA group. Uh, She tweeted, uh, Europe's digital ambitions cut by bickering member state leaders. Other continents will be delighted that Europe doesn't strive to be a digital leader. The next generation will pay a high price. Indeed, leaders have agreed on a pared-back budget of about 80.9 billion euros for the flagship Horizon Europe research program for the period 2021 to 2027. That's roughly similar in size as the, the budget from the last research program, which is, of course, taking a massive step back rather than stagnating, in my view. Uh, Yes, the final figure is certainly a big blow to research and innovation advocates and significantly lower than the proposal of 94.4 billion euros that was put forward by the European Commission even last May. In fact, the industry and the European Parliament were hoping for an increase of the budget to about 120 billion euros to give you an idea of why being 40 billion euros shy of that is quite a hard pill to swallow. After the pandemic funding, the biggest pieces of the budget will be agriculture, and what is called cohesion funding, meant for sustainable development. Paul Webb, who is responsible for the budget of the EU research program, said in a tweet commenting on the budget deal, a bit disturbing that the research and innovation budget seems to be the cash cow in the negotiations. And disturbing it is indeed. Think about this. Only 5 billion euros out of the 750 billion euros recovery fund will be spent within Horizon Europe. And the Commission does not plan to spend any of that on the European Research Council, which is the EU's basic research funder. Janet Thornton, the Vice President for Life Sciences of the European Research Council, was quite critical of the budget deal, of course, uh, saying, quote, This flies in the face of what European leaders have been saying, that the way Europe will maintain productivity and competitiveness is through research and innovation, unquote. 
And that is also exactly how I feel about this. Of course, these are unprecedented times, but not investing in research, technology, science, and innovation, essentially paying lip service to Europe being relevant in these fields for the foreseeable future, but not actually giving them more resources. That's a serious letdown, period. I saw some commissioners and even the president of the European Commission calling the REACH decision, and I quote, regrettable. And if they really meant it when they said for years that innovation and research is oh so important for Europe to thrive in the future, as globally the competition does nothing but heat up continuously, they should be outraged instead of merely calling it regrettable. At least we got some stronger words from people such as Kurt de Ketelare, he's the Secretary General of the League of European Research Universities, uh, who said the proposal was, and I quote, a complete disgrace that disregarded the enormous added value of the EU investing in research and innovation. He said that the cut was a quote-unquote complete contradiction given the EU's stated goals to push for further digitization of societies and economies and for greater environmental sustainability, among other knowledge-driven objectives relating to COVID-19. All that said, the budget story is not quite finished. Next, the European Parliament will have a say, and it's usually far more supportive of research and innovation funding than EU state leaders and national finance ministers. I will conclude this section of the podcast with some words from Christian Ehler. He's a German member of the Parliament who said this deal will, quote, cement Europe's fall behind its global competitors in Asia and the USA, unquote. And Eamon, what a shame. But for some distractions from this debacle, you can enjoy a quite long interview I had very recently with a VC called Philip Botteri. He is a general partner at Excel and a longtime investor and champion of the European SaaS industry in particular. Enjoy. So hey, this is Robin Waters from uh, Tech.eu, and I'm joined here uh, today remotely, of course, uh, by Philippe Botteri, who's uh, one of the partners at a venture firm called Axel, uh, which I'm sure you know, but I'm still going to give Philippe a minute to sort of explain what he does and who he is and what Axel does. Well, thank you, Robin. I'm very, uh, very happy to, to be here today. Yeah, so I've joined Axel in 2011, so it's been uh, nine years now, and a lot of my work has been focused on, you know, cloud computing and SaaS. I've got yeah, I've been fortunate to work with companies like uh, DocuSign, UiPath, Doctolib, uh, Algolia, Snake, and, and and many others. Also on on the board of a couple of marketplaces, so Blablacar and and, and Fiverr. And uh, before joining Excel, um, I spent about uh, ten years, a bit less than ten years in the Valley. So I was with another venture firm called uh, Bessemer Venture Partners, and before that. I was a consultant with uh, with McKinsey, both in the Palo Alto office, and started my career with them uh, in Europe. So please don't hold that against me. <laughs> it's been a long time, and uh, yeah, no. So at Excel, I think the the reason why I joined Excel is because um, you know I thought uh, I saw in in 2011 the incredible momentum which was to happen in um, in Europe. And I knew that entrepreneur wanted to work on, you know, with uh, with global platforms, and, and I think that was what Excel was offering. So with uh, offices in Silicon Valley, uh, Europe, and India, and in, you know, we've been in Europe for 20 years now, you know, and and I really loved the uh, the team there. So that that's what I joined. Never looked back. And uh, if I, uh, you know, if I think about where the ecosystem was in, um, you know, 2011. When I joined, I mean, that was a time where people were asking, can Europe generate a billion dollar outcome? And uh, yeah, no, earlier, uh, you know, last week, uh, you know, UiPath became the first software decacorn out of Europe. So it, it tells you how, how far the, um, the ecosystem has gone uh, in the past 10 years. 
Yeah, that was actually one of the, the first questions that I had because you joined in 2011, which is sort of at, on the back of, uh, you know, one of the, the major crises that has ever, ever hit the world, which was mostly financial. And we're now, of course, at the sort of uh, in the middle or at the beginning, uh, depending on how you look at it, of, uh, of another crisis, which is, you know, a global one and a health related one. So in between those two crises, how, do you, how did you see the sort of the cloud computing or SaaS and marketplace environment in Europe evolve? Like where, where was it when you started at Excel and uh, where do you see it now? Yeah, so the, the, the reason why I moved back to, to Europe from Silicon Valley is because in, uh, in 2009, I, I invested in a company called uh, Criteo while I was at Bessemer. And, and that company was uh, the first application of machine learning uh, to retargeting. And I saw that there was this company out of France, uh, wanted to be global. Uh, it was fantastic tech, super high growth, and no one was paying attention to it. And I was like, wow. This told me like really something was starting to happen in Europe, and um, and that gave me the, the the confidence to to move back. And uh, one of the question I had when I moved back is when I was in the U.S. A lot of my work was um, you know building the Bessemer cloud practice. So I was spending a lot of time on on, on cloud, and um, and that was since 2006. You know when I started in, in venture. When I when I moved to Europe in 2011, you know there wasn't much happening on the software front. I mean, a lot of it was you know in online advertising. There's um, some some um, some some good things happening there, uh, but there was a lot of consumer um, companies and, and and marketplaces. And if you look at this period from you know 2011 2015, I mean that's when you know the Blabacar, the Deliveroo, the you know the Spotify, the Supercell. So that was the era of the, the, the consumer. Um, so I had to shift a bit my focus and, and do a bit more consumer investment, but I was still, you know, I kept looking for, for these software companies. And that's basically in 2014, 15, that we really started to see the first software companies. I mean, I remember my investment in, in PeopleDoc, which went, then was acquired a few years later by, by Ultimate Software. Um, there was Algolia. Uh, and, and then, you know, several uh, followed. And so in the past, uh, basically six years, the ecosystem, you know, has really grown on the in Europe on the software side, and to me, that's been super exciting. Um, and that's why, you know, we started in um, 2016. We had the first version of the Euroscape, the Excel Euroscape, which is basically the the list of the the top hundred. Our view on the top hundred cloud companies out of uh, Europe and and Israel, and now we're preparing the the, the new edition and. Since then, now you know, in the 2019, we had like 13 companies, which we call the the, the champions, that were companies that were north of a you know billion dollar in in, um, in in valuation. And you see, so everything that has happened, and and um, Europe was kind of uh, around you know a, a fifth or fourth of the investment that are happening in the U.S. So it shows how far this uh, ecosystem uh, has gone. And, um, you know, we're working right now on the, the 2020 edition. I mean, there's um, the numbers are going to be quite, quite exciting, despite the, uh, the crisis that, uh, that we're facing right now. Yeah, well, that also means that the bar is getting higher, I assume. So what, do, what does it take for a company to get uh, into this uh, Euroscape? Well, so the, um, for, for this Euroscape, so typically the, uh, what, what we do is we take companies that are north of, um, you know, a million dollar in AR. I mean, that's where we, we start. And then that's it, all right. And <laughs> so that this is the only thing you need to uh, you need to apply. 
and then we look at the, the companies, we look at uh, you know the, the team background, we look at the product, the competitive differentiation, the, the size of the market that uh, that they address, uh, you know the, the the growth rates, of course, and um, you know kind of we combine all this and um, you know try to come up with uh, the list of who we think are the the top hundred, and then on top of that we are our Champions League, which are the, the companies that have graduated beyond that. You know, they're the the unicorns are now even the the decacorn with uh, with UiPath, and um, and and so that's a specific uh, you know specific category which is growing uh, by itself. So that that's kind of how we um, uh, we prepare the uh, Euroscape, and then at the same time we do a you know an in-depth analysis of all the trends that we're seeing um, happening in in that sector. Great. And what was the thinking behind the Euroscape in the first place? Was it internal research that you just decided to publish? Is it a way for you to get deal flow or, or marketing? Like, well, what's what's the reasoning behind it? Well, uh, obviously for us, it's a, it's a way to, to get deal flow. But I think the reason why I started it is because, you know, from the early days, I was, you know, a very big believer in SaaS. I mean, if you look at my blog, so Cracking the Code, my first blog post in 2006 was why I disagree with Tony Zingale on the future of SaaS. Uh, and I remember I went to a conference at the time and Tony was uh, the, the CEO of Mercury Interactive, a big software company. And, uh, and, and during his uh, keynote, basically he was saying like, you know, he didn't believe that uh, in the benefit of, of SaaS and cloud computing. He thought that was a fad. And I came out of this to say, well, no, I don't think he's right. I think he's wrong. And here's why. And that was my first blog post. And so I was, um, you know, very lucky to to be in Silicon Valley at the right time for the the burst of SaaS and cloud com- cloud computing, and we worked on creating all the different metrics, so the CAC, the uh, uh, the MR, and um, and it was very interesting because this kind of started to be, uh, you know, known in the ecosystem, and companies started to use these metrics. But it's really for the success factors IPO that you know Goldman was trying to sell to investors that it was these great software companies, but they were burning a lot of cash. I mean, they were burning a lot more than any previous software company, you know, had before at IPO. And they were saying, you know, how can we justify this? And then they looked at our metrics and said, well, that's the way to look at the business. Like it's a subscription business, you have acquisition costs, uh, lifetime value, and they baked that in the S1. And then from there, everyone started to, to use this, um, these metrics going forward. And so when I moved to Europe in 2011, I was really looking forward to this same, the, the same growth. And I, I was a strong believer that Europe would start to generate this software giants and, and we need to push and recognize this. And so that's why, you know, in 2016, when I saw that there was enough critical mass to get really something going and say, well, let's crystallize this, like, let's show that. Europe starts to be on the map for software. Uh, and that's why the, the first edition of the, the Euroscape was Europe Awakens. I mean, there was a pun, uh, obviously, on Star Wars. Yeah, um, I remember that. And, uh, and yeah, I mean, this was really, I did that because I wanted to put Europe on the, on the map. And so that, you know, Europe would be, at some, at some point, it would be a hotbed of innovation for, for software. And I think, um, you know, this year, I think we're reaching that point. I mean, the fact that Europe generated its first decacorn, I mean, such a, such a huge milestone for, for the ecosystem. 
Yeah, we're going to talk about UiPath in a second, but I wanted to ask, because you started blogging about you know, SaaS in 2006, um, sort of as a way to disagree with someone, what kind of discussions are you having right now? Like, what, what are some of the things you disagree with today in 2020? Well, that's a, that's a good, that's a good uh, question. I don't know. I think I, I don't know if I, I disagree with uh, anyone right now because everyone's recognized that cloud is um, you know kind of is the future. And you see even the the big banks, which were traditionally on-prem, are trying to slowly move their, their infrastructure um, in in the cloud now. So you know, the thing the, the the question is you know how fast can it go and how big can it become? Like, is UiPath an exception or is it just the, the beginning? Um, and, and to me, I think it is just the, the beginning because the um, you know we're seeing the level of ambition of the entrepreneur in the region in the region really rise. I mean, people don't want uh, just to create a local winners; they want to create a global champion. And um, so, I mean, that that's something which I think is you know super exciting. The the other thing that uh, I think this is um, you know the UI path is showing is that big winners can come from anywhere in the region. And, and this is what I would call like the, the Silicon Valley state of mind, uh, you know, and that a term that we use a lot at, at Excel because we think about Silicon Valley as a state of mind, not a physical location. Uh, and we're trying to back entrepreneurs who have that, um, you know, that same mindset. Uh, and so I looked up an interesting stat. And if you look at our last uh, 25 software investments in Europe, they came from 13 different cities. I mean, it shows, it really shows you that the, um, you know, the next winner can come from anywhere in the region. And it's not only about London, Paris, and Berlin. I mean, it is about uh, the entire region. It's about areas in Denmark where we, mess, we made an investment about uh, Altrincham outside of Manchester, you know, UiPath in, in Bucharest. I mean, it is so, so exciting for us. It's quite unbelievable because obviously we're not going to disagree here because with TechU, when we founded TechU seven years ago, we were sort of already saying that, you know, this goes beyond, way beyond Paris, London, Berlin, Stockholm. Um, there's also things happening in, in other places in Europe. But I, like, if I'm really honest, I'm, I've always been banging the drum about Eastern Europe, which I think in the next five to 10 years, there's a lot of innovation going to come from these places. But if I would have heard someone say like the next or the first software decacorns are going to come from, from Romania, I would have probably not believed this even, even three or five years ago, you know? So, so th this has come as a total surprise to me. Uh, Axel, of course, was an early investor in, in UiPath. So maybe for the, for the people who don't know the company, can you sort of uh, explain where they were coming from and how they managed to build such a huge company out of a country that's, you know, basically sort of in the backwater of Europe when it comes to entrepreneurship still? Yes. I mean, I, I remember on, um, you know, on the, you know, when we uh, so we invested in, um, you know, in the company, we led the Series A in, um, you know, 2017 at a time where the, the company was around uh, five million in, in revenue uh, run rate. And, uh, you know, the, the company, uh, you know, just passed, uh, you know, 400 million in AR, like kind of three and a half year later, which has been like an unprecedented uh, growth, and that's you know what explained their uh, their decacorn uh, you know valuation. But if I step back and I look back, um, you know at the the due diligence that uh, 
you know, that we did at the time. I remember, you know, my initial meeting with, uh, in, uh, you know, in, in Bucharest with, with Daniel, where, uh, where three people from the Excel team, uh, there and spent two days with the team. And then on our flight back from, from Bucharest, we're like, there's something great here. There's something that's happening. Like we need to be, um, we need to invest, uh, in this company. We're totally seduced by, um, by Daniel and, and his co-founder Marius. And, and we thought that, you know, there was a, you know, very strong product market fit, like something was really ticking around this. Uh, but of course, like we were far from imagining that three and a half year later, there would be, um, there would be a, a, a decacorn. But to me, I think during the, the due diligence, there were like, um, you know, a couple of things that really told us that something exceptional was, uh, was happening. You know, the, the first one is, uh, you know, I remember that they signed, you know, a, a high se- uh, six figure deals with one of the, you know, one of the Fortune 500 US companies. And, and they signed it in like three to four months. And this never happens. You know, you, when you're, when you're a startup, out of, um, you know, out of Europe and you're trying to sell a product into a Fortune 500 company in the US is going to take 12 months or 18 months, but three to four months that never happens. And they did it. So to me, that was really, uh, you know, one sign which told me like something really, um, you know, exceptional was happening here. And the second thing is like during the, the due diligence calls we were making, we spoke to one of the large global system integrators. Uh, and they were saying that. They basically build a practice from 100 people to 2,000 people in less than two years around RPA, so robotic process automation, uh, which is what UiPath was doing. And I was like, "Wow, you know, I've been in consulting for uh, for several years. I mean, you, these are the things you never hear about, like growing a practice so fast." So it told me that there was something in the market that that was um, that was really uh, really happening, you know. And, and I think the the third thing, which um, which was also, you know, quite exciting. I mean, like when, when we invest in people, we, we're trying to invest in people, in entrepreneurs who are not following like the, the, the paved road. Like we want people who think differently, try, try to innovate in their way. And, and I remember when we're discussing the, the plan for 2017 with, with Daniel, like he had such a big ambition for the company. And we're like, you know what, Daniel, you know, if you do half of what you're saying, like we're already going to be super happy. And it was like, yeah, no, but like, I can do more. I can do this. Uh, trust me. And we're like, okay, let's see. And, uh, and he did it, which was, uh, which was kind of, uh, really unbelievable. So yeah, I mean, like we've been investor since, uh, since then, been supporting the, the company every, uh, for every round. We, uh, even so a year after our, our series A, uh, you know, we led the, the series B. With our growth team, so as you know, um, you know, Axel is early stage investment, but we also have a, a global growth fund, uh, and so we followed up a year after our early stage investment with that growth fund. And my partner Rich Wong from uh, from our US office uh, joined uh, joined the, the the board as well. And um, you know, our global app platform has been really uh, you know behind the company since um, since the early days, and uh, we've never looked back. It's been so exciting. I think it's a great story and it's still a great story in the making, actually, because, uh, you know, they have a, a pretty bright future ad, I would argue. But then the question is, how much of an anomaly is this? Is this an exception to the rule that, you know, the companies from Eastern Europe, are, are they going to be the next decacorn? Should investors be scouting Eastern Europe and the Balkans more more efficiently and more um, profusely? Or, or what's the deal here? How much of a, a lucky streak was this? 
Well, so, I mean, I, I, I think that, um, you know, to get back to what I was saying, I, I think the next champion can come from anywhere and it can come from Eastern Europe and it can come from uh, other cities. I mean, just uh, as an example, I mean, we, we invested in uh, Miro, uh, which is a collaboration software out of Perm, Russia. Uh, like I don't have heard about Perm, but it's pretty far east uh, in Russia. I mean, and that's, you know, a very, uh, very unique product. And now they've relocated their uh, their HQ to, to the Valley and it's really a global collaboration product. They, they recently raised, uh, you know, a, a large round um, and have been doing very well. You know, at the same time, you have Celanis in Germany. Uh, I mean, you have Snake, uh, which is our most recent uh, unicorn out of London and, and, and Tel Aviv. Like, you don't know. I, I mean, that, that's the, the, the beauty that we are seeing in Europe now is that um, it's not about a few hubs. It's about a collection of, you know, 15, 20 different hubs. And, uh, you know, and, and you don't know where the next big champion is going to be. And so so then the question is, like, how? what do we do? Because, you know, you can't cover, like, you know, 20 hubs in depth um, uh, when you, you're just based in London. And, and the way we, we think about it, I mean, it's two ways. I mean, once we've been on the ground in Europe for, for 20 years and we have a, a network of relationship that is uh, very deep, um, you know, with uh, Angel and, and seed investors. Um, and so that has been very helpful. And I think the second thing is, you know, we tend to approach uh, our investment with what we call prepared mind, meaning that, you know, we look at a space and we develop very, um, very strong thesis about, where we want to invest in this um, in these spaces, uh, and then we we look at all the companies that are operating this space. We call them, and that's how you know you 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 can find out companies that are you know everywhere in, in Europe. And it, it's all about what they do and not about their location. And that, that's kind of how how you find them. Right. Okay. Well, uh, let's address the elephant in the room. We're recording this in mid July, so we're still quite in the middle of this uh, global coronavirus uh, pandemic. So the big question is, how has this affected your our portfolio companies uh, in a good or in a bad way so far? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a that's a very good question. Um, so I, I would say, I mean, the first thing I, I would start with is that this crisis has been very different from uh, all the other crises that um, I've experienced, you know, in two thousand and 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 uh, two thousand eight, uh, because this is a crisis. You know, when we got into it, we say, wow, you know, it's going to be bad. So told our portfolio, let's look at, you know, let's look at the cost. Let's revise the, you know, the planning for this year. Let's lower the ambition level. Let's be on the defensive side. And, and that's basically the attitude that we had in 2008 and, and 2000. But then, you know, we looked at what was happening and it was different. And, and we saw that there was like a fraction of companies, a small number of companies, which where the impact was very bad. I mean, if you're, in travel, uh, you know, that's not good. Like, <laughs> you know, when people are not traveling, your business is not going um, very far. Uh, so that's one category. But then you have another category at the other extreme, which was a much larger category where there was actually a big acceleration. Uh, I mean, if you're uh, Dr. Lib, which is, you know, booking management systems for, for doctors and, and, and uh, teleconferencing system for doctors, like, they got a huge boost from from COVID. I mean, they worked super hard. In two weeks, they made their uh, teleconsultation product available in self-serve. And they went from 3,000 doctors to 30,000 doctors in France 
on their systems within five weeks. I mean, that was a huge effort of the, the team. Uh, but the consequence of that is a number of uh, video consultations per day went from a thousand to a hundred thousand. Uh, so they basically allowed healthcare in France to go on uh, during during the, the crisis. I mean, that's that was unprecedented. So then, so that that was for the um, for for Doctor Lib. Now you also have uh, companies, um, you know, in collaboration uh, like Miro that I mentioned, where obviously the need for collaboration is is much higher. Or uh, Hopin, which is in uh, virtual events, like obviously a, a huge boost. Um, another area is anything around you know automation, uh, because there's you know big need for productivity. So companies like Celanese or UiPath, like no slowdown. So that's why this crisis has been very interesting uh, because you have a very small number, very hard impact, actually a decent number with uh, you know strong um, strong winds pushing them, uh, and then you have you know kind of the fat middle where the impact is um, you know has been from you know zero minus ten minus twenty percent, but not 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 a very uh, very strong impact. And now we're starting that it, we're seeing that it is actually um, restarting. So where does this leave us? I mean, it leaves us in a world where uh, there is so much uncertainty right now that you don't know where the economy is going to be, you know, in six months from now. We don't know if we have seen the worst of this crisis or if the worst is yet to come, but we're seeing opportunities to grow in the market and we are not seeing the slowdown that we've seen in 2008. And so for companies, it is actually, you know, a very... Um, tricky uh, situation to be in because you don't want to lose the upside, but you need to be careful that the downside, you know, can happen. And so you need to have this strategy where, you know, you kind of navigate the uncertainty, taking advantage of the growth opportunities, but never leaning over your ski tips because you know that at some point things may start to, uh, to deteriorate. Um, so very, uh, very interesting uh, time, and clearly not not an easy one to um, to navigate. No, absolutely not. And you mentioned a couple of industries that, of course, uh, thrive uh, because or despite of this crisis. Uh, healthcare being one of them, collaboration, software, virtual events, uh, productivity, and all that. Uh, I would argue also online education, things like online entertainment, for that matter. Um, but the question is, how lasting is this change going to be, according to to what you? see in, in the market? Like, is this going to be permanently changed across all these industries or are we going to return to a state of, I would say, semi-normal uh, again at some point? That's, uh, yeah, that, that's the, uh, the million dollar question. I mean, uh, the, the way I think about it is that um, in some way, we have seen an acceleration of the digital transformation of about, you know, a couple of years within a period of uh, a few months. You know, there are some areas which were where people had to find solutions which were far from being ideal. And that's probably going to, you know, go back to where it was. I mean, one example of that, if, you know, uh, you know, for Dr. Lee, uh, some of the dentists uh, were using uh, video conferencing because that was the only way to speak to patients with, uh, you know, who had issue uh uh, and, you know, probably is that going to last? I mean, no, I wouldn't expect dentists in the future, you know, to have a, you know, broad use of uh, <laughs> yeah, video conferencing. Now, on the other side, if you look at, uh, you know, all the, 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 the GPs and uh, the way the regulation has evolved, 
because like the government had to change legislation to all to allow all this uh, video conferencing to happen. And if you look at France in the um, you know before COVID, you needed uh, to have been um, with your GP for a year to be able to do a video consultation. So that was quite restrictive. Like all this changed uh, with COVID, and so you know, hopefully they're not going to go back, right? There is no reason to go back because it, you know, clearly demonstrated that that it is working. I mean, if you look at some of the collab- collaboration tools out there, I mean, people doing virtual events. Now, uh, you know, people are realizing the value of virtual events and, you know, are all events going to be virtual? No, but I think that is a new category that has emerged uh, and that's not, it's not going to go away. Um so to me, like just giving a couple of examples, but I think that a lot of the, the, the transformation that has happened in the past few months, I mean, a lot of it, I think, is going to stay. Uh, a lot of the tools people have been using are going to stay. I mean, the way people are going to think about work from home is going to be very different uh, in the future than it was uh, pre-crisis. Uh, and mm-hmm. I think the, the role of, uh, you know, software and, um, you know, tools to basically allow people to work together, to collaborate together, make them more efficient. Um, I think all this is, is going to stay going forward. Yeah. If anything, I would argue that this transformation is mostly something that was already going on, but it's just been accelerated like crazy. Exactly. And, uh, you know, yeah. like nobody's expecting, of course. Um, so, Philip, we're going to wrap things up. But before we do, uh, maybe uh, advise our listeners on why they should uh, join the Euroscape this year again. Sure. Well, I, I think to me is, uh, you know, at the heart of it is like, you know, do you think that your company has what it takes, um, you know, to be the next, uh, you know, the next unicorn of Europe on, on, on the software side? And, you know, I think by, um, you know, by signing up, by, you know, joining this trend, you're basically supporting the, you know, the growth of the, the ecosystem. Like we're all making that statement, you know, together and we're showing that, Europe can generate uh, champions. Um, so I would say at the heart of it, that's how that that is a key reason to position it. Now, more tactically, obviously, if you make it to the top hundred list, I can assure you that uh, you know all these companies are going to get a ton of um, you know VC calls uh, for sure. <laughs> uh, and then you know the last thing is like we're working with uh, with Tastock because that's where the the results are going to be announced. And, um, you know, we're working with them and, you know, we've, uh, you know, we're going to have a special surprise for the, the, the winners on, on this list. Fantastic. Good to hear. Well, if you're a SaaS uh, company founder in Europe or, or Israel, uh, make sure to apply. I'll put a link in the show notes for the episode as well, so you can easily find it. Uh, Philippe, thank you so much for your time. Uh, it was very interesting. And uh, yeah, all the best uh, with Excel. Thank you, Robert. And this is it for today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed it. Please help us spread the word. Tell a friend or colleague or family member about the show and follow our updates on Twitter at tech underscore EU. Audio engineering for this podcast is done by Sound Pulse. That is sound-pulse.com. Please feel free to email us with any questions, suggestions, and opinions at podcast at tech.eu. I am going to talk to you next Monday, still filling in for Andrew Daigler. Until then, please enjoy your week and take care. Bye-bye.